Think Something Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I got a minute Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and on the show today, returning for round two, getting back into the timeline, all of the lies that history's told us, Ari Aslan from ParadigmThreat.net. You guys probably remember the first episode. It was fantastic. Ari really is... uh, storage of information he's got a lot to say and he was able to pack a lot of really great information into this episode so folks please enjoy and go over to patreon.com mftic to see the video version of this episode because he was showing me some amazing charts some really cool visual displays so please come support us on the journey we're about to have a mobile studio rocking. We're looking for a van. We're looking for a bus some way, somehow. If you have a dollar to share, show us some love so we can get on the road. Make our dreams come true. Go on over to patreon.com mftic as well if you'd like to check out an amazing project. All that is seen and unseen. That's all I'll say for now, but enjoy this conversation with Ari Aslan about Anatoly Fomenko, Tartaria, and the timeline, folks. Take out your notepads. This is a good one. These regions are all lightning scarred creating these amazing canyons, mesas, colored painted rocks. That's alchemy that paints rocks. You know, the energy that would be required to change a rock from one color to another. And, and he says that it is actually amazing that it says, the land was zapped and carved and seared by electrical storms that could have happened last year. So fresh looked the marks of evidence. When I heard him say that, and he, he's, he's a legitimate scientist. He doesn't go into conspiracy lands. I, I, I couldn't believe that I actually had a reference point for my my secondary discharge theory. And he describes the secondary discharge right here. He just believes that it happens. They call them heretics all the time because they insisted. No, there's just one God, invisible God, created the entire universe, the whole universe, not just our solar system, 
and he's meddling in our affairs today. He's leading us from you know, bondage and stuff. So, you know, schism, completely alternate versions of reality and religion and everything hitting this point in Istanbul in the 12th century. Um, 12th century meaning 800 years ago. Not that there was actually 20 centuries, but we can pretty much, if we start thinking on those terms, we'll lose track of it. So the 12th century, everyone agrees, is, is when the Crusades came happened. So we just got to look for the reasons why the Crusades happened. So the schism was the family brought their version and they got chased out of Istanbul. They said, don't ever come back here. This is recorded in the Bible, of course. You know, the, the family's um, being hunted by King Herod or something. They come back. The prodigal child comes back to Istanbul. And he has such a following when he comes back because so many people had been convinced while he was there. It's a very simple story, right? Because we're talking about simple times. The very beginning of modern civilization, the end of cataclysm, when the earth stopped forming, stopped changing, and the civil people are coming out starting to discuss everything. Like, what was all that? And, you know, is God punishing us? You know, the Western people thought God was punishing them. And the Rose Sword Empire said, that is ridiculous. So there's schisms right there. And he had such a following that he started to threaten, essentially, the Western invisible God rulership. Their entire system was being called into question by his existence. Continue the timeline all the way up until modern times. I went past, you know, the BC era into the a into the AD, and I was like, "What is BC? What is AT? What, what does all this mean? And when and when did they decide this stuff as as being, you know, two thousand years ago and so forth?" So it led me directly to Fomenko, Anatoly Fomenko, the uh, mathematician from Russia. Okay, so my last podcast obviously covered the um, Saturnian cosmology, right? It's probably a pop podcast because I think there isn't that much reference points for it. You got a couple of people out there that really heavily believe in it. When, you know, they, they heard the concept and it just works as a model for them, cosmological model. Exactly what happened to me and just dozens of people I've met and many authors I've read. So the Saturnian thing was so compelling that I just had to go into it, finding that there was no timeline or anything like that. So I started to build one. And, and the timeline is going great because I think we actually have enough reference points at this point in history that we can actually put all of these, these data points, these dates, events, and facts together into a story, a story model that, might, that maybe can't predict all of it correctly and even predict future events. You know, that's what a hypothesis is supposed to be. So in other words, I started taking it more seriously around the turn of last year, 2001, turn, um, around the Jan 6 uh, thing, actually, when I did my podcast with uh, Greg and Greg Carlwood. And uh, that was amazing. I got a lot of response for that. And that's when I really decided to take it seriously. So I continued the timeline all the way up until modern times. I went past, you know, the BC era into the, a into the AD. And I was like, what is BC? What is AT? What, what does all this mean? And when, and when did they decide this stuff as, as being, you know, 2000 years ago and so forth. So it led me directly to Fomenko, 
Anatoly Fumenko, the uh, mathematician from Russia. And uh, just a quick question, I understand, but did you do a uh, Fumenko podcast or anything about Eastern Tataria and all that? I'm sure you did plenty, right? We've mentioned Fumenko on the show before. We haven't gone too far into his biography. But right. yeah, past guest Andreas Exertis is pretty familiar with him and, and has mentioned him on the show in his appearances. But I'm sure you got some some details to share with us. Feel free, get into it. Right. So for the modern period, there isn't many historians that I can reference except for Anatoly Fomenko, who made some of the craziest claims out there. Let me just grab that real fast. First of all, he says that everything from zero AD until 1053 AD, special year, is essentially a made-up time period where that period started all of the modern human events. And then those human events were later redacted by people who you know, defeated the other people and, and moved their stories around in order to hide their own crimes. It seems to be the, the primary motive of all historic redaction is to hide crimes in, in the recent past, making them look like they happened 600 years ago, like you know the Aztecs, the Mayans. And uh, Fumienko is basically saying, no, 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 it didn't happen that long ago. And there weren't so many events. There's actually a, a certain set of linear events throughout history that have been duplicated over and over into other stories. You know, he claims that the Trojan War is the exact same thing as the Crusades. Trojan War having almost no reference points, Crusades having tons of reference points. But if that was true, then that represents a pro-Eastern perspective on European history. Right now, we're using a pro-Western perspective. Everyone agrees that we use the Scaligerian Histori historical record. So Scaliger basically came up with this stuff inside the Catholic Church, using Catholic Church records, and then everyone, including scientists, just believed them at their word. So Fumienko, essentially from the East, claims, oh, no, we, we caught into you guys. You know, you know those Eastern guys are. They, they totally think that we're nuts over here in the West, and they have reasons to believe this. And it's, I picked up on a lot of different reasons, starting, you know, ending with this history, this completely alternate view where they see Jesus as a historical figure, a person, not divine or anything like that, but very significant in the schism between Eastern and Western Europe. And so, they, and so their record of, of how he got crucified and everything that happened later with the Crusades is entirely different from the Western perspective. So when I finally found this out, I realized, okay, well, we don't really have a good record of the last thousand or 2000 years at all, do we? Uh, we have all these people fighting over it still. And you know, they fought recently in World War II, they were fighting. So none of this has been settled yet, and we need to try to find a primer for, you know, if we're going to navigate any of this further. So what I decided was that, the, that Fumienko's version of history must also have a bias, and the Scaliger version must have a bias. And if we can find those biases, then we can actually maybe you know, cross-reference the stories and figure out maybe what the truth might be. Uh, now, I would have probably just quit at this point because there are so many people that research this stuff you know, detailed in excess than, than I do. And, but I had this one other theory I mentioned, I'm sure in the last uh, podcast, which is that due to Saturnian cosmology, the planet Mars has had a shared history with the planet Earth throughout antiquity, the whole time. They started with life and we started with life. We broke away into separate planets revolving around the solar system. And guess what? They still have life and we still have life too. So we should just assume that their influence had been felt throughout history. And that's the only thing I really feel like I'm bringing to this, this equation here, because I think a lot of people at that point were just Martians, are you kidding me? And they just tune that out and, and rule it out. 
And they do it in the exact same way that they look at history as a, as a set of fights between states. You know, the English Empire, Spanish Empire, French Empire. No, no, no. no. They're all vassal to the Rus Horde Empire at one point, and they all broke up apart and created a vacuum. So there's no reason to look at them as, as states in a vacuum fighting each other. That whole concept is wrong, and we can't look at Earth politics as isolated either. We have to include if there's life in other planets, we have to include them too. So that's the overall premise of, of basically you know, how I got this far. And I got, I've essentially reached the end of Fumenko's chronology leading up to the 19th century, where he gets really biased, where all of a sudden this guy that's just so trustworthy just starts talking about the French Empire and, and American Empire and stuff in the, you know, not, not the nicest terms. And for a good reason, because maybe we are kind of delusional about certain things. But those biases led me to a big question. Wait a second. Is he biased against the Napoleonic Wars? Napoleonic Wars, obviously, everyone knows, fought between the French Empire and the Russian Empire in 1812. And this wasn't really the Russian Empire anymore. It was the remnants of the Rus Horde Empire after it broke down, trying to be reclaimed by an emperor, Alexander Tsar I. So Emperor Napoleon, you know, he declared himself emperor too, and they had a religious war. So I'm just thinking... This war of 1812 is so overlooked. Once I got to it, it is so overlooked by all historians. Nobody talks about it as if it was the first world war on, in, in Earth. And it was, qualifies as a world war. It involved every continent, and the continent was split between two sides. So 1812 is the first world war, not World War I. And it was Napoleonic War in Europe, and it was here in America, too. Historians split it in half. They say, no, no, there was two... 1812 wars occurring at the exact same time. That's what they tell us in history class. It's crazy. They're saying these wars had nothing to do with each other. No, Napoleon was in America. He was in Louisiana. He had Louisiana entire colony created by King Louis before them with the Jesuits. So my point is that the war of 1812 is completely overlooked by all, by all sides, by Fomenko, by Western historians. And surprise, surprise, there's this huge conspiracy right there in the turn of the 19th century something that is, in my opinion, beyond all of the other conspiracies out there, and that is the mud flood event. You know, what is the mud flood? So real quickly, I'll ask you, have you covered the mud flood much in, in, in your uh, podcast? No, we've, we've only briefly brought it up. And, and quite honestly, <clears throat> that was the first thing I had heard about in the whole realm of Aria <laughs> topics. And right. It brought on a lot of suspicion, and it wasn't until I had like this synchronistic moment where i actually uh, met a friend who has been on the show my buddy alex fournier who who's an artist and, and was really fascinated with drawing the tartarian architecture right he right. kind of broke down the mud flood for me and max egan as well i've heard him talk about it but i'm eager to hear your take on it yeah you see they, they do bring up this complete amazing mystery it's just endless they say there was this civilization living in, in central to eastern Russia and in America, like in America in the ancient times, and that they built stuff that essentially is Roman architecture here in America, a West Coast, East Coast, and the center too. And that these architectures are still there today. A lot of them are museums and so forth. But they just blow people's minds because they do these studies. They find endless pictures like, wow, another Roman style architecture right here in America. What does it mean? In fact, you might ask the question, what does it mean that the White House is Roman style architecture. I mean, were, were we trying to copy someone there? So they're all pointing out this huge missing variable in the equation of history. And that's that somebody decided to erase the Rus Horde Empire, completely erase it from existence. And we are dealing with this 
this compromised history, it's actually a lot simpler in its compromise than it looks. Their motives are simple and the end result of all of it ends up being very complicated. What they did was after the breaking up of the Rus Horde Empire, the powers that be, let's call them the deep state, wanted to make sure that no such empire would ever rise again on earth. And so they splintered it. They splintered the holy sites of the Rus Empire, the, the Kremlin, which was the second Jerusalem. It was the eastern side of the European schism. Their Jerusalem after Istanbul fell. They moved that to Palestine, where Palestine was never Jerusalem. They moved the Catholic Church over to England, made that the center of Protestantism. They moved, I'm sorry, the Catholic Church to Italy, their old headquarters. They moved the Protestant Church to, to England. And they moved the, the Mecca cube, the black cube of Mecca, which was all in Russia. You can ask the Russian historians, they, they all tell you these figures were always in Russia before they ever appeared in Palestine or in Saudi Arabia. So that's, that's the kind of extent of splintering of this resort empire I'm talking about. They took its identity, it took its history, they got rid of its polytheistic religion and refactored each one of those into monotheistic religions. This was the Jesuits so that did this, by the way, let's give some context. The Jesuits starting in about the 17th century, but their plans starting earlier than that, tried to convert every polytheistic religion in the range of the Rus Horde Empire into a monotheistic religion. And the Jesuits went to Africa, they went to Egypt, and in ancient Egypt, which isn't so ancient, they had pyramids already. They had the tombs, which were the tombs of the Tsar royalty. If you're, if you're interested in more detail on all this stuff, just check out Fomenko because he goes into it far more than I can. I can. So I'm just I'm paraphrasing here, but... Egypt was the place where the royalty was buried from the Rus Empire for like 300 years. Why Egypt? Because dry and, and, and non-humid. Uh, it's perfect for burial. Not in the pyramids. The pyramids would not take a burial because people live in there. It would, it would, you want to live in the same place somebody's buried. The pyramids have no burial inscriptions. That's not what they are. I actually described what they are on the other podcast, their energy devices. But, but the Jesuits showed up. And after the pyramids were there, after the tombs were there, they started building the Sphinx. And a couple other things like the Sphinx from Yanko even agrees was built in the 15th century to 17th century. And then somebody knocked off the Sphinx's nose and beard. This is also confirmed. You can look at about Wikipedia. So there's a bunch of mysteries here. And let me just get to the storyline because this is the most fascinating part to me. I'm trying to put together a hypothesis of what caused the mud flood event. And um, since we haven't really talked about it yet, I'm going to give a brief uh, uh, kind of who, what, where, and why. I'm going to kind of follow my script here. We do have a lot of time here, right? I mean, not low on time or anything. Absolutely. Yeah, no, please okay, good. get away. So I'm going to give you a first dose of this script. I've been working on it for months and I'm about to make the video. So the mud flood energy events. Go ahead. What was you going to say? I, I'm honored that you are so kind to yeah. do it here. You're man. the first, man. You're the first. I mentioned this in that Deborah, Deborah gets red-pilled, but I think it blew their minds and I wasn't ready yet to, this, to present. Now I'm, I'm better closer. What is the mud flood? I call it the mud flood energy event. This is because while people call it the mud flood event, you have to explain how it happened too. So mud flood means you got buildings across the planet, across the whole equatorial zone apparently, and, and north, north of it up to about 40 or 50 degrees in the latitude. And all of these locations on earth have evidence of a mud flood, not a mud flood from lahars and a volcano, for example, the kinds that we're familiar with or from rains or anything, or from artificial drilling. Those are the typical mud floods we know that even bury cities. We're talking about something massive, planet-wide events. This is why it blows people's minds. How, what could have possibly caused that? 
why are there so many buildings like in, in the Kremlin and in the, in the East Coast, in uh, Salt Lake City, for example. Salt Lake City got this Utah temple, this Mormon temple, and it's buried underground. Half of it's buried, the part you can't see. You can find a video online, YouTube, where a guy in that location has been researching all of these locations, videos and details, asking the workers, what's going on here? Uh, the workers say, we're not allowed to go down there. It's the typical story we've always heard before, but what is down there? Four or five stories below the temple of actual of tower with doors, windows, something that was clearly not meant to be a basement. This is one of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of examples. I hard to find in Reddit. They're going crazy about it too. So the mud flood essentially raised the level of the ground around all locations on the planet, with the exception that, you know, not all locations, it, it, wherever it would reach. Some locations got heavy mud flood uh, that covered many stories, tens of stories of buildings. The other ones just went up a couple of feet. The cities then went and just sort of ignored that this happened. They just pretended this never happened and just rebuilt doors at the ground level and came up with sort of false histories for a lot of these locations. So the mud flood event ends up being a mystery. Nobody knows why it happened. And I actually couldn't believe that nobody was putting forth a hypothesis since I immediately had one. The mud flood event that moves that much mud from one location to another would have to have a bare minimum of energy released, no matter what, one way or another, even if it's shovels or if it's energy. Just you have to find the source of that energy or you don't have the event. So in this hypothesis, which is falsifiable, of course, many uh, predispositions like that, maybe this was not a single event, maybe it occurred over hundreds of years, different times or something. And I can buy that. That would falsify my hypothesis. But going off of that, this was a single event. I think I know why it happened. So... How did the mud flood event happen? Now, this is going to be out there, but this is related to my Mars theory. The mud flood energy event was caused by an interplanetary assault on Earth by humans who inhabit the planet Mars. The method that used to achieve this event was construction of large-scale directed energy weapons on Mars fired at Earth during opposition. Now, that sounds like maybe that wouldn't be possible in the 19th century. But it is possible if you consider that they're just ahead of us by a couple of centuries of technology, they would say maybe it's not possible, it's too far away. But it is possible during opposition, when Mars and Earth are actually a lot closer than people realize, a lot closer than NASA says too. And way more important than distance is the fact that the Earth and Mars electromagnetic spheres do bump up against each other and causes interchanges of energy. We actually see dust storms that come from Mars and hit Earth sometimes. You can look this up on NASA. It's confirmed. So within this, within this timing, within this periodic encounter, this opposition, yeah, they could fire a weapon at us. A directed energy weapon of what nature? I don't know. It doesn't matter. We're talking about directing energy and that it is a weapon. So the simplest terms, you, you use up a lot of power. You have a lot of power stations. You have, it's a very large scale. It requires the cooperation of pretty much everyone on that planet. It's not a good situation at all. We have some clues in predictive programming of how that might have been going down. So I'll skip to that later. So assuming this was possible, 19th century, it might explain the mud flood energy events. We would have to think on terms of somebody that would go to this desperate measure in order to reassert control over Earth. We have to determine why they would want to control Earth so badly because they have very few resources up there. In fact, they can't even have babies up there. It's really bad and, and they need to continue the cargo. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons. But, but more to the point of the mud flood, this mud flood event appears to be the most covered up event in history. It also coincides with 1812 war, which is the most covered up war in history. I'll get to that in a bit. So let's see. 
so then if they had so much trouble covering it up, maybe there was a mistake in it somewhere, a mistake to the entire operation that sort of caused this conspiracy that we have today. It wasn't so perfect and it should have been perfect with that kind of advantage that early in history, these guys should have had us. There's something that went wrong. So my theory is that you can't just shoot earth with a bunch of energy weapons and not expect a sort of secondary discharge event. And I'll say this is even my theory. This is a theory from Andrew Hall from the electric universe. And he has gone to the locations in the Midwest and he has studied them thoroughly and come up with a conclusion that they have all been lightning scarred. These regions are all lightning scarred, creating these amazing canyons, mesas, colored painted rocks. That's alchemy that paints rocks, you know, the energy that would be required to change a rock from one color to another. And, and he says that it is actually amazing that it says the land was zapped and carved and seared by electrical storms that could have happened last year. So fresh looked the marks of evidence. When I heard him say that, and he, he's, he's a legitimate scientist. He doesn't go into conspiracy lands. I, I, I couldn't believe that I actually had a reference point for my, my secondary discharge theory. And he describes the secondary discharge right here. He just believes that it happens. It happened in antiquity. It happened a long time ago, thousands of years ago. And I believe, based on this one little clue that he said, it could have happened even more recently than that. He says the evidence looks very fresh. And, you know, go to any of these amazing sites, like, you know, everyone's got to go visit Sedona at some point in their life. And the rocks are amazing. And, you know, you got to ask, what, how did this happen? How did these rocks get even created? So um, he describes it and took a huge energy source that sort of zapped its way across the Midwest. And he didn't go so far as to conclude what I've concluded, that the Grand Canyon is actually the line of that secondary electric discharge. Now, he has images on his own. So you're going to say something? Like the great thunderbird that flew across the Midwest, <laughs> man. I mean, it's right. mind so many things that I've heard through my research of indigenous cultures and the star people, right? Star people. Yeah. Yeah. And even like not to take things too far off track, but the Tunguska event, which we know happened in the (laughs) early 1900s, but go on my friend. That Tunguska event. When I first read about that, that's when I first got convinced that there's probably a cover up going on because how easy it would have been to change that event 100 years from 1912 to 1812. So the Tunguska event, certainly if you look at the details of it, describes the sky changing color, splitting in half, a laser or something, a blue beam, which is where I think that that is Project Blue Beam, was slowly approaching Earth, hit the Earth, and, and just destroyed everything on the ground, forests and everything. The people that were there were basically being burned alive, but the ones that survived it described it as a heat source so intense, they tried to rip all their clothes off and hide. There was nowhere that they could see anything to hide of. And then it was over. They survived it. So obviously some people were in further regions out where they could survive these weapons. You know, what are these weapons is the only question left to ask because the Tunguska event still remains completely unexplained today. It is the hypothesis for it, of course, is that it was a meteor strike that exploded in the sky, which is very interesting to me because a meteor is a hypothetical concept that has never been proven. When meteors that approach Earth tend to move away from Earth as as they hit their magnetic repulsion of our electromagnetic field, they don't seem to ever hit the earth. And the craters on the moon are all vertical. They're not at an angle. They're not craters from meteors. They are craters from lightning scarring. So I believe it's an t- official explanation for the Tunguska event, being a meteor exploding in space is, is too fishy since we don't have any other meteors that ever explode in space. We don't have 
a physical reference points for what electric universe people think happens, which is pushes back and creates a huge electromagnetic force on the ground. So you know, scientists don't even believe in that. So they can't explain the Tunguska event, period. And we actually can if we just consider the possibility that it was a weapon. So back on track, I was looking, I was, I was very curious at Andrew Hall's description of the secondary discharge event. Secondary discharge, meaning the primary cause of all of that electrical scarring in, in primordial times was not necessarily the cause of the secondary discharge, secondary for another source. He describes it as the earth heating up from the primary source, interplanetary discharge, causing the earth to heat up. All that energy has to go somewhere. That's, that's thermodynamic law, cannot be destroyed. The energy settles and coalesces and eventually discharges in some location. That is the secondary discharge back up through the ground. This, this ground secondary discharge that's also cataclysmic and devastating, described in Chinese lore, as the dragon. Dragon, as you know, goes around the ground's surface. It does not go in the sky. Not that, not that dragon, not the Chinese dragon. So they, they're aware of a scarring dragon that hit their territory. And we're aware of, with Native American records, of something happening. That could actually come up with a much better example than that. In, I, know, I know the audience can't see, but um, I'm just pull from, from my reference. The Shiprock. Well, if um, the audience signs up for Patreon, they will see. Oh, really? Well, that's great. If they can see the videos video. on Patreon, you can see Ari and his oh, excellent. Here, all, all the monitors is pretty sick. All right. So I should show this stuff then. All right. So and I'll tell you too. Shiprock Mountain is this location in Arizona. And I haven't been there, but you know, it's completely unique because it has these long lines that stick out way far. And there is a Native American legend that this mountain was created by star people. So you look it up and it's pretty efficient. So first question asks, how does star people create this mountain? It's a legitimate question. We can't just jump directly into ancient aliens and magical technology. We have to actually look for what creates mountains like this. Uh, positive scarring makes mountains. Negative scarring makes canyons. This is something, if you, want to see, if you want to check it out, Sapphire Project has done all these experiments the last 20 years, and they've concluded their experiments in 2019. They finished two years ago. It's very new stuff, very exciting cutting edge. And I won't even, I won't even spill the beans. Go check out what they've discovered in 2019 stuff that will change the world on its own. Uh, energy technology, just say that much. So anyway, these guys have reproduced these images in, in laboratories, you know, negative, positive, mesas, all of it. And Andrew Hall goes out into the, into these locations and says, I know what that is. I know what that is. And then we have reference points from native Americans. These star people created these. So if the star people created this and they know that, then would that just be the same thing as saying, that they caused all of this lightning scarring in this region, that they shot this region up and it, it, the leftovers are mountains and all kinds of stuff. So let's get into that real fast because no, I'll stay in order. I'll, get, I'll save this for last. I've got a lot of points on the map that I can show. So the next question, the most important question actually is why did this happen? Like I said, we could speculate all day about aliens and, and, and weapons, but there has to be a, a final, final reason why they chose this date, this location, why they screwed up even, why they rushed it, why they might even feel remorseful for how it worked out. If you look at all of these events as possibly been redacted into modern science fiction, you'll find a perfect model in the game Ender's Game, where someone on one planet destroyed a bunch of people on another planet, and they felt a lot of remorse for it. So yeah, perfect match. So why is the only question. So that war, that, I'm sorry, that Eastern versus Western European schism that I mentioned earlier, it's very significant because oh cool yeah this is a this is a just a slideshow here so if anyone is watching they're seeing my 
my collection of images here. So the schism was all about Jesus. And Jesus was just a person, but he was a completely political person that that story just never went away. It kept mattering over and over. So let's just get right to it. The paraphrase again, Jesus and his family um, was from the Rus Horde Empire. The Rus Horde, why they're called Horde, is because they are not, you know, all this, they all, all look the same. Like you and me, we look the same as pretty much everyone else on the planet, with the exception of skin color. Same size, you know, not hairless. And you got this Rus Horde Empire, which is described as giants um, and not giants and hairy people, people with so much hair on them, but they're intelligent. Some of them can't speak, but they can do music. The Rus Empire descriptions are legendary and they, fe- they seem like fantasy. They're also the basis for video games, Final Fantasy. All those stories came from that empire. So the schism was that Jesus went from his home in Crimea, where she was born, he was born with his family to, the, uh, to Istanbul, which was a religious center. It was Jerusalem on earth, first Jerusalem. The first actual Jerusalem was the one in heaven, the one everyone saw at the top of the, of the collinear configuration. And, and that was not you know, a place, that was just something they saw. The first Jerusalem on earth was a place. It had three rows of ramparts. It looked exactly like the, I can't remember my Lord of the Rings terms here, the, the White Castle in Lord of the Rings, Minas, Minas Tirith, right? God, I'm totally blanking. That, that castle, right? Is it? Well, I'm not Gondor, a Lord Gondor. Of the Rings guy, so no, I'm not. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So act. Gondor Castle, right? Yeah. In Lord of the Rings, you go watch the movie, you see three rows of parts. Very defensive, right? Very defensive. They even say so in the movie. Go to the second level. That was Jerusalem 1. Jerusalem 1 is built through ramparts. You find it in all of the older Bibles. And of course, it wasn't located in Palestine. So anyway, Jesus and his family went there. Now, his name wasn't Jesus. That name didn't appear for hundreds of years later. The letter J, appearing from the Western alphabets in the Eastern language in Cyrillic and Greek languages, did not have J. He was, not, he was called Christ because Christ means anointed one. Anointed meaning you're special in some way. So why was he special? Because in many secular records, his mother went around town saying, oh my God, I'm pregnant, you guys. I have no idea how this happened. Now his mother, Mary, whatever her real name was, was not, she was not her size. She was a giant. And she actually was hairy. And you can find references to Harry Mary in all kinds of alternate descriptions of this entire story out there. Again, Roost Empire, completely erased. So we don't really get to hear much about these things, but it reminds me of not to jump in, but yeah. it reminds me of Inkiru and Gilgamesh, right? The story of, <laughs> uh, of Gilgamesh finding this like wild friend, this, you know, man that was like him, but hairy and mm-hmm. they became great friends. And I've, I spoke to Isaac Weisop recently about this kind of dual theme of the brothers that you see in mythology, but it would make sense that human beings are not uh, the only type of humanoid being, right. you know, based on a lot of the research that's coming out in that realm. But yeah, continue, my friend, because you're no stranger. <laughs> that topic is no stranger to this show. Right. Absolutely. Excellent. So first thing to know about Jesus and his family, that's not his name. And it was probably Andrew and, and that there was several different versions, accounts of this story. You got the Western side, and the Eastern side, and another secular side. Now, his family went to Istanbul. And they caused problems. They basically said, look, we have a religious system over here in the Resort Empire. It involves polytheism, respecting all the gods, you know, put one in each day of the week and so forth. <clears throat> and, and you guys are crazy. <laughs> they, they kept telling the Western people, you guys are crazy. They called them heretics all the time because they insisted. No, there's just one God, invisible God, created the entire universe, the whole universe, not just our solar system. 
and he's meddling in our affairs today. And he's leading us from, you know, bondage and stuff. So, you know, schism, completely alternate versions of reality and religion and everything hitting this point in Istanbul in the 12th century. Um, 12th century meaning 800 years ago. Not that there was actually 20 centuries, but we can pretty much, if we start thinking on those terms, we'll lose track of it. So the 12th century, everyone agrees, is, is when the Crusades came, happened. So we just got to look for the reasons why the Crusades happened. So the schism was the family brought their version and they got chased out of Istanbul. They said, don't ever come back here. This is recorded in the Bible, of course. You know, the, the family's um, being hunted by King Herod or something. They come back. The prodigal child comes back to Istanbul. And he has such a following when he comes back because so many people had been convinced while he was there. This is a very simple story, right? Because we're talking about simple times. The very beginning of modern civilization, the end of cataclysm, when the earth stopped forming, stopped changing, and the civil people are coming out starting to discuss everything. Like, what was all that? And, you know, is God punishing us? You know, the Western people thought God was punishing them. And the Rosewood Empire said, that is ridiculous. So there's schisms right there. And he had such a following that he started to threaten, essentially, the Western invisible God rulership. Their entire system was being called into question by his existence. And as everyone knows, they crucified him. What people don't really know is that on Istanbul, in that sort of location, with those kind of defenses, this wasn't so much just like a demonstration of, we're going to crucify an insurrectionist or somebody that professes to be the son of God or anything like that. They were crucifying a giant. And that really plays, plays the picture differently. They're doing it in a region where they had heavy defenses. They're almost saying, hey, other giants out there, you know, you're not so organized, but we think that we could take you if you're organized on us in this location. It was sort of a Western desperate attempt to reassert control of this losing situation they're in where their own people were losing faith and being called heretics by a much more advanced restored empire. And they did this gruesome display. It was a compromise. Got to remember that Jesus, not his name, went along with it. So his family, they all went along with this crucifixion. They said, okay. And afterwards, the paintings and so forth show that he was taken down from the cross by his own family, by no one else. Yeah, there weren't any giants around. It's just those, I think, four people, his younger brother and so forth. And so they took him down and brought him back to the Rusword Empire. That's their version of history. Fumienko actually doesn't even agree with that. He says that he died there, but there's so many reasons to believe that Jesus went on back to his home, back to the Rusword Empire, stayed there for a long time, and continued to travel even to America, making it to America crippled, of course. I mean, assuming that he did get crucified. For having a huge following around him, he sort of made uh, a lot of, you know, he made a lot of speeches and sermons and stuff in locations in America. And this is what the Mormons believe. They will tell you and they'll swear on it. And it's, there's an explanation for this, you know. They think that he revived and came to America. But the simplest explanation is this giant wasn't killed on no cross. He was brought to the Rusword Empire, survived, brought all the way to America. And we don't know where he was buried because there's many graves of Christ. There's one in Japan. That's the most famous one, actually. I believe that the tomb of Christ in Japan, it could be the real one. Who knows? But it's probably not because that would represent the most Western, Eastern point that the Japanese or Asians or anyone could have traveled without going through the, the Forbidden Land Bridge area, which was controlled by the Resort Empire. So I can imagine that they came up with that location, even if it was fake, but I'm going off topic. So back to the schism, the Europeans, they crucified Jesus. And within 10 years, the Crusades happened. What are the Crusades? This is really angry Resort Empire saying, can you believe what they did to one of our princes even? Because they called him a prince. Was he a prince in the first place? I don't know. 
he probably became a prince after he became really popular. That's my guess. They didn't really have princes and stuff in the Rus Horde Empire yet. This is their early stages. There's just this huge eclectic, you know, heavenly empire uh, based on technology and sharing knowledge. And there was no warfare yet at all anywhere on earth, which is hard to, hard to factor into, but it was true. So the Crusades start the first real war on earth between humans. And they start because one side killed the other guy's guy or crucified the other side's guy. But that's not a good reason to fight, is it? So now I'm entering in my theory here that there was actually a deep state influence this whole time. The deep state would benefit from war. They benefit from conquest, benefit from taxes. And right before Jesus showed up, he was actually telling these guys on the, on the Western, Western Europe that they don't need to pay taxes to the Catholic Church continuing old traditions from the rest of the Egyptian empire, that taxes actually have no legitimacy if they don't have any, you know, <clears throat> they, if they don't have a um, mandate of the people. Mandate usually is an emperor or something like that, or a god. And if they, they can't prove that this invisible god is affecting things anymore, then the Rusord empire people are going to convince them to stop. So, so kind of going in circles and just trying to get to the next part here. Yeah, they benefited from the Crusades. That's the whole point. They moved headquarters from Italy to Kremlin. The deep state did. Now, who is, who's the deep state? Well, we're talking about priests who hang on to ancient artifacts. Ark and the Covenant, for example, which has been described as a communication device. Of course, you know, talk to God through, right? Well, who's God? Could have been, you know, humans on Mars. Also described as a teleportation device. I don't need to go there yet, but that's pretty amazing. So anyone who still has this Ark of Covenant, you putting it in these proper locations like a church with the right kind of energy flow can probably talk to their God, which they, they think is their God, the invisible force that says, it constantly says so. I mean, you look at the Bible and the Old Testament and you look at God's own words, it's like, I am, and you forgot about me and, and don't test me like you tested me in NASA and all kinds of recent bitter history where God is basically yelling at the person reading the Old Testament. Uh, so yeah, that's how he spoke. And we can just assume that that's not a real deity. That's just somebody playing a trick on people, Wizard of Oz style on Mars but not necessarily. They could be on earth too. They could be in another pyramid or church. All of these structures are energetic, connected by energy. And at right times in the day, sunset, sunrise, for example, they can be harnessed to communicate. Now that's, that's you know, the most secret of, of church secrets. So you're not going get, to get them to admit these things, but yeah, they, they spoke directly to their, their God at the time. Their God was telling them, you know, crucify Jesus. I, I guarantee you that there was a deep state that told them to do that. That was a bad move. They should never have done that. Crusades proved it within 10 years. So, but it benefited the deep state, didn't it? They moved headquarters to Moscow. They're like, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. We're just the bankers and the priests. And, and we need to force Istanbul, Turkey, and those Westerners to start paying taxes because we just conquered them in a crusade and, and they're still heretics and we need to you know, pay for the crusade. So right, right away, the Rusward Empire is abandoning all of its principles, which never really had, never had declaration or constitution or anything like that, or an emperor. And, and they're starting to do usury and slavery and bad things. So I, I say, this is my hypothesis, that that's where the deep state moved. And that's their influence, some invisible influence telling an entire empire of people to do things. You know, something that we're sort of still familiar with today. And we call it the deep state because we're not sure what it is yet. So moving forward, the Rusward Empire has now been invaded by the deep state. In their headquarters in Moscow, they create Jerusalem number two. Um, why? Because they destroyed one in the crusade. And by the way, that's Troy. The, the first Jerusalem one, that was Troy, the Trojan War. And when that Trojan War, when, that, when Troy fell down, they never built it up again. Right now you go there, 
uh, you'll find the ruins of Troy today, Euros, they called it back then. And Euros is the clue that that is Jerusalem, Jerusalem, or in Hebrew, Jerusalem. So Euros is right there in the first half of Jerusalem. And Euros is Troy, according to the, the, to the, the Greeks. If you go there, like I said, you'll find ruins and you won't find a museum or, or even a way to look at the ruins properly. You won't find a drinking faucet. And at the same time, one of their most sacred temples in Turkey was a museum for the last 10 years or so until it was recently taken back by their government. So you can see the, the, the schism is still happening in Turkey today. We're not letting them you know, have their own history or their own locations. We're lying about their locations completely. But back to it, the Sword Empire was in trouble. And this is in the 13th century until the 15th century where they decide to get serious and start the Inquisition in, the, in Western Europe. A lot of people think the Inquisition was just Spain or, or something like that, but of Spain, England, all those locations were actually vassal states of the Rusort Empire at the time. So the, the orders came from Moscow. And you can see Fumienko talking extensively about this. He has a lot of evidence that this is the case. The Inquisition, what was it? Well, it took him 200 years to start it. It wasn't exactly like an a evil campaign. Westerners think it's evil. Of course they do. I'm Westerner, so of course I was raised in that. The Inquisition actually was a result of the fact that there were so many witch burnings and hangings occurring in all of their colonies in Western Europe, and of course, in the colonies in America in the 15th century. These witch burnings were occurring because, and this is kind of crazy, but here's the, here's the answer. These people, and there's many of them in our society, or there used to be, were telepaths, the ones that received voices, knowledge, information from God or saint, whatever you want to say, Jerome, that kind of stuff, like Joan of Arc, for example, who was originally Deborah, named Deborah, and apparently not in France. Yeah, get to that later. All these people that had visions and then did something about them, yeah, um, they, they, they experienced telepathy and they might have received good things. Someone told Joseph Smith where to find those tablets. They might have received bad things. Like uh, Joan of Arc saying, you know, we need to resist the Rusort Empire in the guise of the, of the English people, their vassal state who were attacking them at the time. Okay, yeah, you know, whatever you want to see of that, of that uh, war is, you know, fine. But the point is we're, we're seeing this landscape where some people are being influenced by invisible telepathy for long periods of time. It's apparently all ended in the last two centuries when they introduced fluoride to the water. And now none of us can, you know, do that anymore unless, you know, part of um, certain groups of people who we don't know how, why, why they're controlled, you know, celebrities and so forth, jumping off topic. But you're seeing it's the same parallel in ancient times. You got someone that becomes a celebrity because they have, they're giving orders from some invisible force, which they say is God. Everyone rallies around them and they say, okay, fine, let's do it. And so this became such a problem for the Rusort Empire that, that, that they started to do the Inquisition in order to, to solve the problem. And I mean, solve it in the good, best way they could do it. They, they took the power away from the people to kill anyone. They said, you're not, you're not doing that anymore. They put people through trials and they almost entirely let everyone go. This is true about the KGB in Russia. This is true about the, the Nazis during the Nazi. Westerners tend to say that they were the worst of the worst, but actually they're not. They were, they were a necessary instrument of their time, a way of preventing violence, preventing violence. They would put people through all of the Inquisition. Who are you speaking to? Why are you speaking to them? Why do you think you should rally us into a fight again? We just had fights. We just had the Crusades, you know. Why would you want more of that? So their, their inquisition was pretty reasonable and they mostly wanted them to give up their, you know, their, their crusades. They can believe in whatever they want, give up, give up the secret societies, give up the, the terrible rituals, circumcision, baptism. You, know, you can like think that baptism is a good ritual and that's fine, but 
the way it's done today, there's a lot of problems with it. And, and so they're just trying to say, you know, we're saving you from the people you live around, from pogoms. Anyone who's Jewish knows what a pogom is. It's when all of a sudden everyone in that village gets mad at you and, and sometimes people die. So it's hard to understand the Inquisition on those terms, but this was during their, their middle period where they were really struggling. The Russo Empire was struggling to, to take it seriously. Let's be a real empire now. We took over the planet. We built all these amazing locations all over the place, heaven on earth, really. And well, we don't want everyone there. So the Russo Empire set up gates and they said, you cannot go to the East unless you're a citizen. That Russo Empire was redacted into the Roman Empire. So we all know about this, the citizenry of the Roman Empire and that you can get through the gates. But here's a big surprise. Do you know that when Westerners discuss heaven and getting through the gates of St. Petersburg, they're actually talking about St. Petersburg in Russia. They're talking about getting past the gates into the east, into the Rushord Empire, which the Westerners considered to be heaven. Why? There was no, there was no usury. Well, right there, no usury, right? I mean, no taxes, no money and stuff like that. There was all these wonderful places that are free to visit with, you know, water and technology and moving sidewalks. And when you get into the mud flood cover-up, you will be amazed at what you find. So that was like heaven on earth. And Western Europe was ghettos and it was all because of usury. It's all because of this one taxation system, which still ruins the world today. And people are just like, why do you guys do this? So Inquisition eventually, eventually forced the, the Western Europe, European God believers to leave. Now, these are the precursors to Jews. The, Jew, the word Jew is a, is a positive term. It just means one who praises God. It doesn't actually mean anything else. It has no historic reference. And it can actually can be a span to include all people who believe in an invisible God. And well, that's a lot of people, isn't it? And it's actually everywhere the Jesuits reached, everywhere they reached, they got everyone to do that. So yeah, um, we're talking about invisible God, monotheism, birth, pantheon, polytheism from the East. We're talking about religious schism. So the, the uh, Jews, I'm just going to call them Jews from this point on, of Spain, England, France, all took boats, flotillas, giant flotillas, and they moved to America, and they created new colonies here. These were secondary colonies. The first colonies were the Rusford Empire. The story of uh, Christopher Columbus, which happened three centuries later, according to Fumenko, you know, he, Jews had hired him, of course, and, and that entire story was redacted into the story of Noah from the Bible. Yeah, crazy, right? Totally crazy. But if you think that the Rusford Empire was flooding Europe and they avoided the flood and it was an evil flood, and then they went to the new world, which was good, then you see that these stories really do make sense. These are actual stories that happened purposely redacted. So the, the visible God believers, the Jews, moved out of Europe. They're all running away from the Inquisition. This all is true. And at the exact same time, they're infiltrating the Rusford Empire. The Rusford Empire, of course, was influenced by the deep state, but not fully. They, a lot of its eclectic sort of power structures remained in place and threatening to the centralized power structure of the old empire. And by old empire, I mean first Atlantis and then the Egyptian empire, a very centralized system of order that they're trying to restore again. So the Rusford empire, they're trying to infiltrate it. They're trying to, they're trying to usurp the aristocracy. They're trying to form an aristocracy. They're saying, hey, these guys are important. These guys are emperors. Let's call them empires, emperors, and they're holy we're in the realm of the empire. We're in the first Reich, the, the, the emperor's realm. And, and the, the emperors and their family are like, fine, whatever. You know, they don't, they don't really buy into this stuff. But the, at some point in, the point in the timeline, they had no choice. Now, there, there was a schism occurring in the middle of that, uh, royal, that royal aristocracy in the Rusford Empire. So this is in 16th century. Let's see if my notes show that. Yeah, 
16th century. They tried the Reformation. There's a bunch of female heroines showing up in Western Europe, resisting them. And everyone's like, wow, look at these women fighting back against the massive Rusword Empire. It's awesome. So the Rusword was doing terrible and it was losing its reputation. And at this time, the inner aristocracy power structure was being infiltrated by what we know today are, are the Romanovs. Romanov's lineage. It's a royal bloodline that leads all the way back to the, the uh, priest, priest families of ancient Egypt. So the Romanovs, they sort of infiltrated Rusword Empire by marrying into it to the point that they caused a split up, a break in, in between the emperor and his wife. Let me see if I can grab that note right here because I can give references. Yeah, these Russian names, man, you know, I'm trying to get into them. Elena Moldovanka and Sofia Paleo. Paleo the Log. I'm going to get these names down before I do my video. <laughs> the wife of Ivan III. Let's say wife, uh, Ivan III because that was the emperor. And he was the one that this whole thing happened around. Now, he, his, his son was killed, setting off events. The, the uh, doctor of the son was executed, similar to Alexander's story. And nobody could figure out why the son died. The son's wife was going to be queen, became really close to Alexander, or, sorry, uh, Ivan III. Bizarre. So Elena became close to Ivan III, and he pushed his wife away, Sophia. There was this edict, edict that was written that said, if she chooses not to come to this court one more time, then she's forbidden from ever appearing in this court ever again. That kind of shit was going on. So a real bad, bitter split at the highest level of the Rusword Empire. And all this while, people were accusing of an infiltration. They weren't stupid. There's The entire empire was well aware that there's reference points for this, that the Rusword Empire was being run by foreigners. A lot of people say that these days, like Ukraine, Ukraine is run by foreigners, a guy that wasn't born there. You know, Obama was a foreigner, blah, 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 all kinds of conspiracies like that. So they're saying the same thing back then. It wasn't a big deal. They couldn't prove it. Same, same as today. And as it spread, you had this situation called the, Ju the heresy of the, Judi the Juda Judaizers, J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R-S, Judaizers. So Fomenko says, these guys um, are evangelical Jews, meaning that they're trying to spread their religion that there is an invisible God that rules everything and that we need to listen to him, do everything he says, according to one version of events. So what was the problem here? And this is referenced in Fomenko and Western history and Wikipedia, that these Romanovs were only pretending to be Christian at the time. Christian being the Eastern Orthodox version based on Andronicus Christ and his whole story as an emperor. They're pretending to do that while secretly they were Jews. This sounds like, oh, that's so anti-Semitic or something. But we're really just talking about, again, that schism conflict. You know, they wanted to hold on to their thing while also holding on to the power that they had in Russia. And it's very natural for families to want to do this. So they kept spreading. And eventually, the, the empire got wind of this. Not the empire, but the, uh, the courts got wind of this. This was redacted into, into the book of Esther, where Esther is Elena. And she's convincing the court, I forget all the, the names in the, in the Hebrew Bible, to basically not kill the Jews, right? It's the same story, convincing the court not to kill the Jews. And so the court, they go to the session, they say, you know what, we're going to do an inquisition right here, top to bottom. We're going to find all the Jews in our empire, and we're going to eliminate them from points, positions of power. We're not going to kill them or anything like that. We're going to make sure that their, their, you know, their, their centralized order system doesn't start ordering us around. So, so as they did this, they completely messed up, and they had this ruling in the Archbishop Gennady of Novgorod. They had this convening of councils. And they did not rule against the heretics of Moscow. At the exact same time, they did rule against the heretics in Turkey. They took out a bunch of, of uh, Jews in Turkey and said, you're banished. You can't be here anymore. They went a little bit too far there. They totally missed the people inside their own walls in the Moscow. And that's what led to this schism. 
which like in the book of Esther, this, this character, Esther Elena, convinces the court to, to take out the other side instead. Who is the other side? Well, this is a really sad and dark period of Russian history, the darkest period where all of the generals, highest level generals, the ones that were basically resisting the, this influence, this invasion the most, you know, being on the ground with the most information and stuff, were taken out in a major coup, a bloody coup that was, that was militaristic in nature. Yeah, it almost certainly mirrors episode three of Star Wars when all the Jedis were suddenly killed, even though that story is kind of dumb. I think they're trying to reference this. This was a real thing that happened and the generals did not see it coming. They had so many insiders at that point and, and they, they were too proud and, and old fashioned to resist basically the bottom line of that story. And for a period, the Jews take over Russia. The book of Esther ends and it's redacted into the past, into the BC. But the Russian account of the story continues and says, guess what happens next? Yeah, of course, something else is going to happen next, something big. Ivan III, who who has been, you know, reclusive and not talking to anyone, eventually gets better. He, he comes out into the public and starts talking to the church members again, who basically, the survivors, they say, do you have any idea what you've caused here? And, and he's just like, I'm so sorry. Ivan III repents to the council for a period of years. And then eventually he, he decides, all right, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to really actually do something about this. And the tide turns against the Jews in Russia. They are forced out entirely and in such a way that they will never be able to infiltrate again. Their most famous icons, the black cube of Saturn, for example, is encrypted. Well, it's encrypted today, but they, they, they made sure that that location would remain in Moscow. That's a Moscow location. And we're going to praise it as such. That's, the, that's our tribute to our creator, Saturn. And it's the Star of David. And it's all kinds of stuff. The Western Judaizers, the infiltrators, had no choice to fight that kind of strategy but to completely pretend that that Rusward Empire never existed in the first place. Those locations were under other locations in their control from ancient times. It's, a, it's just an amazing strategy that, that just does not end, stop giving. You know, This was their strategy to erase the Rusward Empire. And they had been slowly, slowly gaining foot. The Rusward Empire fights back, takes them all out. And at that point, the empire uh, falls apart completely. There is so much infiltration... I'll say infiltration towards the Eastern Orthodox polytheistic pantheon by people that don't believe in that kind of thing in all of their colonies that they basically lose control of all their colonies all at once across the world. And um, jumping ahead here, 1775 was the end of the great um, rebellion in Russia. They fought themselves, big civil war. Everyone loses, basically everyone loses. Kind of like our civil war. And uh, after that, everyone was like, that's it. No more resort empire. We're done with you guys. And uh, America declares independence, 1976. A lot of people think it was from England. So, well, actually, in the declaration, it says Great Britain. And Great Britain, which means the great land of the white people, basically includes the resort empire too. You know, I don't find any references for that anywhere. That's just totally my theory. But I do believe that declaration of independence was completely legitimate. But they're declaring independence from the resort empire not England. So um, other, other things happen. England doesn't declare, declare independence, but they do in a Protestant way. They say we're no longer part of, part of Eastern Orthodox Church. And also they're, they're pretending to protest against the Holy Roman Catholic Church, which didn't even exist until the 19th century. The Holy Roman Catholic Church, which has all those historic stories and reference points, is just stolen history from the Resort Empire. So sure, it existed, but it was the Eastern Orthodox Church. 
and the Protestants were protesting from the West against the East. It makes more sense, right? So anyway, three-story empire is falling apart. Um, it, it fell apart. And you got this Western plan to take them out and rule the world. This plan becomes known as the Jesuit plan. For all test purposes, this is where the Jesuits' mark on history starts and ends till today. It doesn't end till today. So why, why is it the Jesuit plan? Because they're the society of Jesus, right? And as they're spreading this word, Jesus, two places that basically don't even have a letter Jesus, they are <clears throat> more or less representing an infiltration or at least at the very nice, nicest terms, evangelization. Uh, here's where it gets really tricky and cool. The Jesuits went to China. There was no ancient China, but there was a place there. And it mostly had a bunch of giants, not, not small people. And they said, you guys are going to believe in Buddha. And Buddha is uh, identical to Jesus, resurrection, all that kind of stuff. Going back to the savior story of when Buddha was a planet, and came down from the collinear configuration down to our level. This could be Mercury or Mars, but they stayed in our plane and then go off into heaven, the outer solar system. The Buddha story later became, I'm sorry, the, the Messiah story, which took many forms like Prometheus and stuff, became the Jesus Messiah story by the West and eventually became the, the Buddha story too. And in this, they're convincing that entire Eastern religion to give up their pantheon and believe in a central religion. Buddhism, of course, believes in a central, invisible God. Hinduism does not. It's the biggest difference between Hinduism and Buddhism. Maybe it's the only difference, actually. So then you go a little bit west to India, and you find the same thing happened. Buddhism reached India from the west. That's the story of journey to the west. Sorry, from the east to the west. And, and brought Buddhism to India, right? No, that didn't happen. The, the uh, people lived in Indi India, which is really called Hindustan at the time, and they were Hindu, had a Hindu religion. And, and when Buddhism showed up, that was an infiltration. Buddhism started building giant structures of Buddha everywhere in India, along regions that had not even been formed yet, which we'll get into later. Uh, yeah, this is turning out to be really long, so I hope it's not too long. <laughs> I have a lot more to cover, oh, actually. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and this is really helping me get it all down. Yeah. All right, so. So, yeah. Jesuits went to China and created Buddhism. Went to India, brought Buddhism, brought Buddhism there. The Jesuits went to Egypt and they created the rebirth of Osiris. Again, these are my theories. I can't find anyone talking about this. This is just too deep, apparently. Osiris, representing the old god of the Egyptian empire, up there in the sky, Saturn, Venus behind, in front, and then Mars in front of, Sat in front of Venus. So Saturn, Venus, Mars, triform god. Osiris had three forms, three parts rather. And when the Egyptian empire fell apart, when it became unlivable, desert, the upper class, those Judaizers, those, those invisible God religion people moved to Western Europe. That's why we're seeing them there in, in the timeline. And the black servants of Egypt sort of stayed because they can endure the heat and stuff. Not that black people endure the sun better than white people, but that if they're expected to, and if they have that kind of lifestyle, if they live outdoors rather than indoors all their lives, then they won't see a reason to leave when the temperature changes. So they stayed. And they saw a lot of reasons to stay. The black slaves of ancient Egypt stuck around and maintained the holy sites, which they considered holy, even though Osiris had left. Osiris, according to them, had broken up into pieces, and its pieces had been buried around the earth. These pieces are Saturn, Mars, and Venus. They didn't really get buried in the earth. They just disappeared. And the Jesuits show up in Egypt, and they say, hey, we're, we're creating a statue to Osiris. This might seem 
completely benign to you and me, to anyone that's ever heard of Egyptian anything. It's just like, so what? Build a statue of Osiris. But under the context of this schism between the invisible single God creator of the universe and everyone else's indigenous belief system, yeah, that's a very offensive symbol. You cannot just build that and build a big sphinx of that right in front of the pyramid. That, that means that the Osiris God has been resurrected. That's what it means, that he's here now, that he's watching over us, the invisible eye, the pyramid on the eye, and all that stuff. That's what the Jesuits were telling the black slaves of, of Egypt and Africa that, sorry guys, um, that God that you thought disappeared and died is back. He's back and he's in charge of you and we're in charge of you, you know, that, that kind of things. It's very infiltrating and it's very threatening. And the kind of Jesuits that they send to those people are very polite, beautiful, white skinned people. I'm not saying that they're more whites, beautiful based on your skin. I'm saying that they chose the most beautiful people they could. You know, they were like French people and stuff, pretty and small people, small size, small scale, all kinds of nice, nice things about them to push their religion. When they showed up, they weren't going to be chased out of town. People fell in love with these Jesuits and it was, and no one had any idea how to stop the infiltration. So moving forward, the Russoid Empire has broken up. The uh, Jesuits have this new plan to invade the whole planet. The plan that worked, by the way. And, it, and we see this French Revolution occur. This French Revolution, again, overlooked in history because it leads right up to 1812 war. And it, it follows the American Revolution, which we'll get to later. So everyone thinks it actually is, is almost like a side effect of the American Revolution. But I tell, tell anyone to read that French Revolution, any version of it, you'll be blown away. It's such a, it, so much happened in the French Revolution that could not have possibly been, been influenced by anything else but its own internal history, the Jesuit plan to invade the planet. This whole plan got exposed during the, the French Revolution as the Jesuit priests who were becoming the Holy Roman Catholic Church were, were the most hated subgroup of humans in their entire Western Europe. They were hated at the midpoint of the revolution. They were dragged out of their houses and temples and killed you know, in some, in some, to some degree. So these Jesuits exposed the plan. Yeah, we are kind of invading the world and we are sending you people out there to do it and a lot of you have died and some of you have been eaten by cannibals sorry about that you know just going to use that against the cannibals and propaganda against them and and still invade them anyway it's just so evil a plan the the french people were just like you know not without our not without our approval not without our vote we're going to create a system of government where you guys have to get our approval for certain things because we don't necessarily disagree with all of it you know there was this big uh, plan to create the suez canal in, in Egypt, you know, let's do it. That's a great idea. So a lot of things they wanted to keep. And so they worked with the Holy Roman Empire and, and Louis. And, and the, throughout the revolution, the French people are, are giving them back power, saying, okay, we're putting you guys back in charge now. We want to vote. But we don't want you to ever take these rights away from us again. So the Holy Roman Catholic Church, they say, great, we're in power. Go away. You don't belong here anymore. And they just revert completely back to their old, old pattern and start doing terrible, evil plans again, terrible plans. One of these plans is to start giving the indigenous people of the world they're trying to infiltrate citizenship in France and in Europe if they cooperate, if they buy into their religion. You got people from everywhere. You got Asians, you got Egyptian black slaves who make it into France. We see black people still there today. We got Indian, uh, sorry, Native Americans in America, known as praying um, praying Indians, that's the term. Praying Indians means a Native American who was converted into Christianity. 
So you got them from everywhere. And they come back to France and the French empire says, and this might sound very familiar to, to what's happening these days. You guys, you immigrants are now citizens of France and you get all the same rights as everyone else. And you can build um, houses. You can do usury if you want, because that's your right from back home. You know, we're not going to stamp on your old traditions from back home, so forth. And the French people are like, what is this? Are you kidding me? You can't just like completely come up with a whole new plan that that takes what we just gave you guys and and infiltrates it from the back end and gives citizenship to not us. And and now they're going to own everything. They're going to be rich. We're going to be poor. The French people saw all this coming, and they're and and um. I mean, the people I meant, the people on the ground, also the generals like Napoleon, who was just in the middle of this fire the whole time, trying to work with all sides, saying, okay, are you guys happy? Are you guys happy? The whole time he was trying to work with them, representing the will of the people in the end, not because he wanted to, but because he had to. And, and so King Louis gets deposed again, and his wife gets deposed. And, and the second time, I think that's when they kill him and his wife. At this point, the French people are so upset that they actually killed their monarch and the middle of the revolution, which isn't even over yet. Now, I'm not professional at this revolution, so I'm sure I'm getting a couple of details right, but you can see how significant this event is. Next thing that happens, the French reassert control over their government. They say, we just killed the emperor and we, we killed a lot of you Holy, Holy Roman Empire people too. Do not do those things to us again. Now we're going to put you back in charge again. Here we go. And we had to, because the, the old system of government still has so many ties and so many regions. You can't just get rid of it. You're going to create a power vacuum, which is terrible in history. So they're trying to work with the, the priests of the Catholic church to maintain order. And all they need them to do is just not be so evil. And um, so after killing Louis and putting the church back in power, they came up with one rule. They said, we're a republic now. And the landowners are the only ones that get to vote. Sorry, you're not going to do that immigrant thing to us again. And um, so you can see that the birth of the republic, the idea of a republic and why it's still fought over today here in America has everything to do with what is a citizen. And is there a plan to bring a bunch of immigrants into your country to make things worse for you, to control you? Well, apparently there has been plans like this throughout history. So anyway, French Revolution ends in failure. They don't get the government they want. The Catholic Church is not going to work with them at all, ever. And Napoleon, he basically approaches this Council of Ancients. Let me grab my notes here. Yeah, and... Uh, 1799, they do a coup, and right, Council of Ancients, Napoleon approaches him and says the Republic has no government. We tried to make government, and it didn't work. He says the revolution is over. And then one of the deputies of this Council of Ancients, Council of, of Judges of, of France, said, and the Constitution, are you guys still going to use that Constitution that we all wrote? Napoleon replied, referring to the earlier parliamentary coups that they had done, Constitution, you yourselves have destroyed it. He violated on the 8th of Fructidor, which is, I think, the foggy month. They created a new calendar in France, renamed all their months. It's really beautiful. And he violated 22 Florial, and he violated on the third, 30th of Prairial. And the Constitution has no respect for anyone in this country anymore. So you can see that he is confronting the people who basically ruined everything and telling them that we don't have any more plans now. No more going forward. No more plans. That's it. Everything's ruined. Within a few years, it's in 1804. Napoleon becomes emperor of France. So within this five-year period, you can see that Napoleon never wanted to become emperor. And he never wanted to be, he never wanted to be the guy that this revolution depends on either. He wanted to give the power to the people in any way he could. But that plan's over. And these Jesuit Catholic Church type people have so been ahead of the curve 
that they know this is going to come some point in the future and they have plans to co-opt it when it does. They, they are the deep state. They know what they're doing. So Napoleon, and here's my big theory on him, did everything he did after this point because the deep state plan itself became opposed because he saw it for what it is. Not him, but his entire following, all of the thousands and, and hundreds of thousands of people that work for him, scientists and historians, map makers, and world circumventing travelers too, all of them. They are talking and they're saying, look, so we know what they're doing here. Jesuits are pushing this old religion and, and they were going to declare Alexander Tsar emperor of Europe. He was going to be the Tsar of, of the world, essentially. And uh, they're going to sort of maintain the old Rus empire as the headquarters, even though all of the religious and history icons have been splintered away. This is a, a devastating plan. This is so, it's so impossible to fight a plan like this. You have to convince the Jesuits to give up. They already tried an inquisition, right? We're talking about people looking at history. They've tried everything. So Napoleon makes a plan. All of his people make a desperate plan. It's desperate. They say, there's no reason we should fall for this. If we turn the plan on itself, turning the plan on itself, if we do that, then everything they've worked for will turn in our favor. We don't have to fight the plan anymore. We are the plan. That's the new plan. He declared himself emperor. He did so after five years of convincing the um, Catholic Church that this is going to be the right thing, that, he is, that he's the ordained emperor of God. And believe me, it's not easy to convince these people that you're ordained by God. That, that all these invisible, all of the Old Testament people have talked about this to death. Oh, you think you're a Messiah? We've already had that happen. Messiah's up the wazoo. So from Napoleon to try to convince him he's some kind of ordained by God emperor is ridiculous, but he did it. He actually did it. And it's so simple. He said, look, guys, do you know why I'm even in this place right now? Why I'm um, hero of the revolution? Why general? They born and raised Napoleon as inside of their garden, a deep state garden to be a puppet aristocracy, just like all the other ones, just like everyone else. He wasn't any more real than anyone else. He was, he was, he was a fake royal bloodline. And why fake? Because this is based on the ancient Egyptian empire of royal bloodline lineage, which no one else agrees with. They, they think they're royal because they think they're from God, right? And so they said they went to Europe and kept this bloodline. And that Napoleon is of this bloodline. And they claim a bunch of other people too, like Mary Magdalene. Sorry, no, that's, she's not from your bloodline. But they like to claim people who become very important to them. So, so naturally, they're obsessed with this whole bloodline thing. They created Napoleon as a puppet aristocracy, and he became self-aware him and his whole posse, they all started talking about this plan. What do we do with it? And after enough years, they actually come up with a good plan. He declares himself empire, emperor, and then they go and invade Russia. They liberate all of Europe. It's not exactly hard to do because the Russian empire is already in pieces, disintegrated, and the Jesuit empire is already planning to take them over anyway. One second, let's turn on AC here. Any questions so far? <laughs> about to get into the cool stuff. I, I have a lot of notes I've been taking, but yeah, I really love how, you know, the picture is all coming together. I mean, I'm sure right. listeners of this show, Tinfoil Hat, Higher Side Chat, you know, they know that the Jesuits are like this group that's been hinted at and we all have like an idea of what they are, but I, you're yeah. doing a really great job of putting a composite picture together. So keep, keep at it, man. I'm just sitting along for the ride here. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually amazed that biases can help people back. I think Fomenko didn't see a lot of this because he's not allowed to, because you can't talk like this in, in Russia. But I can, right? I'm here in America, so here we go. So we're talking about Napoleon decides to turn the Jesuit plan on itself. That's the simplest way I can put it, because it really was a plan. 
and it goes to all parts of the planet. And if you were to be the one who's in charge, then you can do the right thing rather than the wrong thing everywhere on the planet. What is the right thing? You can actually go as the Holy Ordained Empire Emperor and tell the people, your own, your own believers, that you're not and that they don't have to do this anymore and that they can go on and live their lives now. If you're not that guy, you can't do that, okay? So it's really, really a linear plan. It all ends up being about who's going to be the royal, religious, holy bloodline emperor from ancient Egypt ruling Europe and therefore the rest of the world through vassal. So uh, they turn the planet itself and Napoleon basically liberates Europe and invades Moscow. His invasion of Moscow, I never even heard of it before. They, they didn't even tell me about this in history class. They told me about Waterloo. Everyone always talks about Waterloo, which is um, tiny and irrelevant. So let me grab my notes here. I saw this map, Napoleon's Russian campaign, 1812. And I just couldn't believe that this was the truth. This is the official history. Napoleon reaches uh, Moscow border with 422,000 soldiers. So that's almost half a million. He apparently crossed the Alps to do this. The Alps. It's not easy to cross the Alps. You can ask uh, Hannibal. Now, the French people are small people and Napoleon was small. So again, they're not very rugged. But you have to give them credit if they really were that rugged to do that. But I have a feeling that they were using technology to do it. I mean, if you look at the mud flood and what's been covered up, you can see that this period was was the release of a great deal of technology. Not, not by all people on the planet. Not free. No, not all. But by the Jesuits, again, the Jesuits were the ones releasing technology. And one of their technologies, of course, was anti-gravity, and they made airships. I see airships all the time in fantasy and stuff, but, you know, they're not that hard to make if you understand that anti-gravity is real. The propellers don't lift the ship. They just keep it up and down. Zeppelins were very popular and all kinds of just cool technology that we don't see anymore. So even Zeppelins, just say Zeppelins, they crossed the Alps with those. It's totally possible. And they invaded Moscow, not because they had any resistance. The Russian Empire, like I said, was disintegrated. And more to the point, the French Empire had a ridiculous array of weaponry, weaponry that's so advanced that actually is more advanced than weaponry that we have today. We'll jump onto this really quickly. There's a really cool topic, cannons. Look at cannons all over the planet. You see there's cannons left from previous wars, but none of them work. It's crazy. All those cannons you see in museums and monuments, they do not work. And this can be proven in demonstrations on YouTube. People said, let's try one of these out. Gunpowder, cannonball, boom. The entire cannon cracks in half. It's like, what was that? That didn't work. Let's try a different way. Cannonball flies out, but doesn't cause any damage. Let's try a different way. A cannonball hits a wall, but doesn't cause any damage. In the Civil War in Charleston, I went to this fort with my wife, and we um, read the story about how they had to change the cannonballs into pointy uh, balls in order to even breach the walls, which is incredible to me that in the Civil War of the 19th century late, that they did not know how to use the cannons that they dragged all the way down there into the south, that the cannons didn't even work. What kind of shock and awe campaign is that? There's something being covered up here. The truth is that these cannons, as existed in the 18th century, were advanced weaponry, sound devices, not lasers even, sound. Now, they actually could have been lasers. I can see that. I don't think they're designed that way. I don't think they'd work like that. But uh, the sound, yeah, that's, that's part's proven. You look for a sound cannon demonstration on YouTube and you'll find one. So it's a big cannon looking trumpet looking device that shoots invisible energy out and the energy hits the wall. The entire wall collapses and comes apart. Very powerful. And they would take down castles with this technology. They would trumpet and the trumpets would destroy castle walls. This of course gets redacted into history, into the Bible as well with Jericho, the story of Jericho. A bunch of people surround that, uh, Jericho and 
blast it with trumpets and it comes apart. How could that be? You know, without, without divine intervention, it's impossible unless the trumpets are sound cannons. So anyway, Napoleon had these sound cannons and they couldn't be stopped. This wasn't really an invasion that could be repelled or resisted. But historians tell us that they had artillery cannons and that they're dragging them along. Okay, fine. So Napoleon has this major defeat in Russia, which is what catches me onto this whole thing in the first place. He loses 422,000 soldiers, making it back to the border with only 28,000 soldiers. So what could have possibly caused that? Well, in the official history, sends 50,000 back as a flank, loses them. He sends desertion disease, kill 175,000 all at once. They lose a battle, 130,000 die. They reach it to Moscow, and they find that the Kremlin is burning. It's burned to the ground. Napoleon decides to stay there from September to October for a month and loses all of his resources, runs out of food, and his army starves. They, they come back, they start retreating, and by then he only has 37,000 soldiers. They reach their flank, and they found that the survivors are mostly dead. But they, re, re, they get back to 50,000, and then by the time they make it out, 28,000. So they were massively defeated in this war that no one wants to talk about. It, couldn't, it doesn't make sense to me that somebody that made it so far into Europe who had so much control over the planet would lose in such a way in, in Russia and not be able to retreat properly. There's no sign of a war because the official historians say that, that the Russian army retreated into Siberia and that they actually didn't engage each other. And, and then Firmenko's new chronology, this is where basically the chronology gets really quiet and doesn't really talk much anymore. They don't, they don't seem to like Napoleon. They don't reference him much at all. And I, th I say that's the Eastern bias. So now we're looking at what really defeated Napoleon in the 1812 war. Right after this war left, you know, the French influence in America left too. So if you look at the French influence at the time, they're approaching Russia from, uh, from the west to the east, and they're approaching Tataria from America, from Louisiana, approaching it from the west. Oh, sorry, I got that backwards. Approaching it towards the west from the east. So they're approaching both sides of this old Rus Horde empire, Tataria, at the same time. It wasn't just Russia. He obviously lost in America too. So what defeated Napoleon? And then we find out, and I find out, that actually there is this mud flood event. It's just like, it was amazing. I couldn't believe that these two events are occurring at the same time in the early 19th century. How could they not be related? The mud flood has to be a result of someone trying to defeat and reverse all of Napoleon's victories. So, hey, Kat, what were Napoleon's victories? He didn't fight a war, Napoleonic wars. He didn't fight a war. One second. He turned the Jesuit plan on itself. He went all over the world and convinced everyone to switch up their religions, their government, get rid of usury, and stop taking orders from the old empire. I mean, it's, it was great. And everyone was just like, oh my God, this guy is a liberator. How do I know this? Because there's a couple of proofs in there. If you look at the Statue of Liberty in America, if you dig deep enough, you'll find out that Napoleon came up with the idea. Yeah. And the historians don't like to give him credit. They give credit to the creator of it, the person actually put it together, like that matters. And they also completely overlook the history of the, of the why the Statue of Liberty was built. No one knows today. Nobody knows today. The original reason was they're going to build a Suez Canal in Egypt. They're going to build a statue right at the edge of the canal. He was calling it the light onto Asia. It would greet all of the boats from Asia and give them this huge, obvious light in the horizon that they knew was going to be a canal to, to Western Europe, a trade route that had not been attempted yet. And um, something that would literally free the world. If you allow merchants to trade like that without an empire, then you got 
a free world completely. To signify this new free world project and many other projects like it, he built this statue, uh, a woman in robes. This woman is Egyptian. Again, if you dig deep enough, you'll find out that the Statue of Liberty is Egyptian woman, not a French woman. And the idea came from Egypt, France. And when they moved it to America, they hid the original meaning and changed it into an immigration thing. They're pro-immigrants, aren't they, the Jesuits? So it's not a surprise that they would do that. They turned his idea of a free world back into their plan of a, um, of a pro-immigrant world, a pro-immigration world, where everyone is the same and we're all common. Communism, the birth of communism. So when Napoleon got defeated, yeah, all well, that got reversed. But what else was the plan? What else did he do? He destroyed the Sphinx, right? A couple of versions of that story. You know, the one the official one is that he didn't have anything to do with it. And that was an accident or so forth. That doesn't make any sense. Other explanations is that, and the controlled opposition people are hard to work on this one. They're saying it's like an old, a much bigger pyramid, a much bigger statue of, a, of Anubis, the god of the underworld. Okay, fine. Why would the god of the underworld be built in front of a pyramid? The pyramid is not a tomb. Anubis would have been built in the tomb locations, south or south down. And, and, and the statue is clearly a human with, with, with an animal body. It's not, it's not an animal, it's a human face. So let's just be realistic about this. D dig deep again into the uh, Sphinx, you'll find that the official explanation for the tearing of the nose is that somebody drilled holes into it and then with some kind of machine pried the holes open, tearing the nose off. They took uh, better care with the beard and got rid of that part. So why would they do this? It's the only question. Why would they do this? Well, symbolically, that Sphinx was the resurrected Osiris, rebranded Jesus, rebranded Horus, rebranded Buddha, the resurrected invisible de deity that is now uh, showed up and we all have to worship him again as the son of God, that whole narrative, the Jesuit narrative again. And Napoleon knocked the nose and the beard off. It's almost like, wow, what a prankster. He's trying to mess with somebody. No, no, no. Symbolic, again, it's all very symbolic and important. The soldiers themselves would never have destroyed a statue of an ancient god. No one ever does. Uh, they're too afraid to. They would modify one, though. And they, they talk to their scholars and they say, hey, well, I'll make sure we're doing this right. You know, what do you guys think? The Osiris god broke apart Saturn, Venus, and Mars. And now there is no nose and no beard anymore. They say, well, if you remove the nose and the beard, the old god Osiris will not be mad at you. And the new gods of Horus and Isis won't be mad at you either. They're talking to the Egyptian slaves here, the ones who are scared to death of this religion. So they need to know that everything they're doing is not going to be affected, not going to piss off the gods. That's the whole point of these statues anyway. So Napoleon knocks the nose off and the beard off to make it clear to the Egyptian black slaves, and they were still black then, that, they, that this is not going to be, it's not happening. You know, that's that resurrected destiny deity did not resurrect. It's over. We knocked the nose off. Watch, nothing happened. See, Napoleon gets struck down. Huh. Well, so hold on a second. Yeah, now we're going to get to the craziest part of all this. For Napoleon to be wrong, for him, all of the claims he made, the ones he tried to sell to the Jesuits, to their slaves, to his own French people, for him to be right, he has to win the war. And he actually has to be right about God, right? He can't actually be wrong about that if he's wrong. If their scholars are wrong and stuff, then God's going to show up and reverse all of this. And it appears that's exactly what happens. So now do I think that it was a deity? Of course not. I think that it was people on Mars, humans on Mars, and that this was their most desperate moment. They're about to lose control of Earth forever. This, this planet is fully exposed. They're not going to be able to do one like it again. <clears throat> so they have their tricks. They have their technology. They don't really have the willpower to zap Earth. 
that requires a little bit more. They had to rally their own people into something like that as a desperation. They had to promise those people something as, as a result. You, you do this for us and we'll do something for you. That's how everything happens. We know that a lot of cities appeared on Mars in the 19th century and then were suddenly disappeared. Maybe they're still there. I don't know. Depends on how well NASA is covering it up. But we know that they appeared in the 19th century. And uh, maybe that was what they promised. You know, you do this for us. We'll build these great cities on Mars with water and everything. This was a desperate plan. And so see some bearings here because uh, I'm going too fast. So what we're talking about is people on Mars trying to reverse all of the progress of Napoleon without making it look, without exposing themselves. So no one thinks that they did it. So they're going to zap all of the locations that, that he allied with. All the people who are warned this whole time, don't ever turn against God. Now, who's been warning them? Well, the Jesuits warning them for a long time. And in their Old Testament Bible, you can find warnings all over the place. Do not turn against me or I will punish you. Like I punished the Syrians, like I punished the Persians. And there's a whole history in the Old Testament of God punishing people who went against him. So uh, it's very clear to anyone in the modern 19th century that, you know, essentially we're talking about don't, don't talk to Napoleon, don't let him in the doors, his army, don't listen to what they're saying, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. And if you're one of those people that continued the Jesuit religion, despite all of the things you're hearing outside with all of these people talking and, and, re and revolution and stuff, then you'll be saved. You will be saved and preserved by this deity. That's what the Old Testament has promised these people for a long time. And that is exactly what the human Martians delivered. They destroyed all of the places that had turned against the um, religious empire. They destroyed Napoleon, his entire army. Oops. It's a mouse. That's no, Paul. They destroyed Napoleon's army, his airships. There are pictures of, of airships burning in the sky. There's pictures of Napoleon flying in an airship with 15,000 soldiers. I'm trying to have them all organized right here, but I will for my video. Let me pull up one of them though. It's just one reference point. No, it's here somewhere. Ah, okay. So we got a painting here. A giant wooden monolith in the sky on fire, falling to the earth. We've got lots of paintings like this, and they have no description. But really, well, this helps to my point. Anything flying in the sky that was part of Napoleon gets zapped. Any building that he created gets destroyed. The Kremlin, that wasn't destroyed by, well, actually, hold on a second. I'm different theory about that one. Buildings that were loyal to the empire get preserved, and buildings that were not loyal to the empire get destroyed. You got kingdoms of Ireland and Scotland. You got Kingdoms on top of mountains, 50 of them, these locations, these, these fortresses that have been melted, melted ruins. You can look up Scottish melted ruins and you'll find that there's no explanation. In the 90s, sorry, 70s, they had a bunch of British archaeologists trying to recreate the melted ruins of Scotland and they couldn't figure out how to get, get such hot temperatures in such a high region with so much wind and stuff. So these, these are mysteries that have not been solved, but these kingdoms were all taken out by fire from the sky. They melted, they were seared, they were scarred, and the survivors, the ones that survived, were simply built a certain way. The cathedrals, the cathodes, were built to accept energy, and they, they would be the ones surviving these lightning storms when other flatter buildings would be devastated. So it turns out that the most loyal people who hid in these sanctuaries, these cathedral cathodes, would actually be preserved by God during the when he's killing everyone, when God's showing up and killing everyone. So why do I think that that's the case? We actually have a lot of testimony saying so. Let me go to the religious testimony. And it's aside from the, the mud flood. This isn't related to the mud flood. This is about religious testimony saying that something happened in America. For example, Book of Mormon. 
Book of Mormon clearly states that there was a race of giants living here in America, you know, Bruce Ward Empire, giants, and that, and that they came from the Tower of Babel when it fell, which is a collinear configuration itself, which means that they were here all along, and that in the Book of Mormon that they're all killed off by God. The Book of Mormon describes that the giants were killed recently. It wasn't even that long ago, though it's been stretched by a thousand years. We're not talking about BC times anymore. We're talking about modern times. And when these giants were killed, it's because according to the Book of Mormon, they had become evil. So it's the same testimony again. Anyone that went along with the plan, Napoleon's plan to free the world, to rid the world of religion, of, of taxes, those, those guys were evil and the good guys would be saved. So that's what Book of Mormon says, that the loyal Puritans and so forth, the ones that were living in America, the ones that survived the onslaught were preserved and everyone else died. Why? Because they were living in these cathedrals, like the, like the, the Utah, what is it called? I just said earlier, the Utah temple, Salt Lake City temple in Utah. Sorry. God. And if you look at this temple, it's designed as a cathedral, could withstand electric discharge. Even though it got buried, they hid in the temple and they survived in it, watching all the giants die. Now, how do I know there's giants? Because of the giant burial mounds. Another one, another inductive proof. The giant burial mounds exist all over America. If you look at a map of them, you'll see that they're like all over the east and west coast and not in the middle. There are tens of thousands of them. Now, are they burial mounds? Everyone thinks they are, because why else would that have happened? They could have also happened immediately in a single discharge event. Here's how. Electric, electric discharge can cause petrification, instant petrification of life forms, of trees, of you name it. We have petrified forests here in, in the West Coast. I forget if it's Arizona or not. California, I think. Petrified, entire petrified forest, the entire region that was petrified. The entire region over here Mexico, is not petrified. I think, right? New Mexico has it. Yes, they definitely have one. I'm wondering if California one has one too. So, uh, you know, uneven petrification is the point here. Okay. What is, and, and if you look at these burial sites, what is the, what is, why were they put in those locations? Well, all of the burial mounds have been destroyed. Everyone that's read the Smithsonian cover-up knows that they're gone and we don't have many reference points anymore. But the ones we do have basically show that they've been splayed out in a random pattern, that they were not planned out at all. These are not burial sites. These are random sites. It's where they fell. In fact, there's a couple other things that prove this. They have tools with them often. Often they're, they're buried with their own tools. And people are like, oh, they're taking those tools to the afterlife with them. Okay. Except those guys didn't believe in that afterlife thing. They were living in, in heaven on earth. They did not, they, they're polytheistic. They're about reincarnation, about dualist agnosticism. So they were not about heaven or hell. And they were not about taking their tools into the afterlife. So that they were found with tools all over America means that they probably had them on them when they were killed. And then you see nothing left but a skeleton and some tools a few feet away, you know? So it's testimony. You got Navajo testimony, of course. You got the star people. And they actually say that Shiprock Mountain was created by them. Shiprock is a positive lightning scar. So we're looking at a positive discharge happening. And uh, we don't know when Native American testimony happened because the dates have all been redacted. So it could have happened as recently as 200 years ago. In Palestine, which I said earlier was never Jerusalem. It was just a palace as part of the old ancient Egyptian, Persian, Babylonian empire, which I call the pyramidal empire, because it was a series of pyramids across the equator of the planet. And, and that, those places became un, uninhabitable, but people stayed behind. And we have Arabs living there today. We call them Arabs because that's the region was called Arabia. And in Palestine, we have these old Arabs that were there. We got the Jews that showed up in the 18th, sorry, 19th century and eventually created Israel in the 20th century. The Arabs, I know all about this, been hearing about my whole life. 
consider the creation of Israel to be the Nakba. This is a term meaning catastrophe in, in Arabic. And they say the catastrophe occurred when the holiest site, their third holiest site, was taken by, by Israeli soldiers in the 18, 1948 war. You can back up a little bit and say, wait a sec, why did you guys choose that date for the catastrophe? I mean, a lot of bad things happened to, to Arabs when the so-called Ottoman Empire was taken out by the British, wasn't it? Like in um, that movie, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, taking out Aqaba and all that. So they constantly lost ground. They were not, there was always a catastrophe going on for those guys. So it wasn't Palestine. It was a catastrophe. It was an actual catastrophe that they remember happening in the 19th century. And they're not allowed to talk about it much. It's like they're not allowed to talk about anything because Islam has shown up and taken over their entire history. Their Quran and all of their old ancient texts and everything are now the Quran only. And it's either you're with us or against us. So they can't talk about what happened in the 19th century. No one can. It's all tied into the Jesuits and the schism in Europe and all that kind of stuff. So moving forward, we've got David versus Goliath story, which, um, as you can imagine, would not have been popular in the Resort Empire at all but it's now very popular in Western Europe literature. We're always talking about destroying um, giants, killing the giants, and they're so bad, they're so evil, and we should kill them. We got movies, you know, Jack the Giant Killer. We've got so many movies about giants being evil. The, uh, you know, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings books both mention excessively that giants are evil and cannibalist. So you see this Rusword Empire and a bunch of giants being taken out, and suddenly our religions have all this literature about giants being evil. It's no surprise. So David versus Goliath's story is actually an astrological allegory. The entire story can be decoded into the um, astrology of Saturn crossing the, the Zodiac, and it wasn't the person, but it represents that the, the Old Testament is now no longer friends with giants. Now they're written out of the story. They're not on our side. They're evil. We're doing propaganda against them. Right, we got, we got the Tsar's testimony in the feet of Napoleon. This is actually one of the most interesting clues for me. You look at Alexander, sorry, Nicholas Tsar II, I think his name was, the one that fought Napoleon, he stated, after Napoleon was defeated, they got a bunch of Jews in Russia declaring victory. They're like, God has intervened and defeated our enemies. And, and the Tsar of Russia saying, no, 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 guys, don't say that. This was not a in divine intervention. I looked it up and I looked at the words. The Tsar says, this was not divine intervention. That's what he says to his own people right after the War of 1812. He's trying to downplay it for some reason. And the Jews of Russia, of course, say, no, no, no you're not going to believe it. You're not going to take that at all. So the Jews of Russia essentially have believed that divine intervention occurred, not just Russia, but all of Europe, everywhere, that they believed in the invisible force. That invisible force showed up, caused the mud flood, caused the energy event, destroyed all of Napoleon's allies and army, and destroyed the Rus Empire. Let's not forget the Rus Empire was the old enemy of the deep state back in the day, and they don't forget. So the deep state destroyed all of their enemies all at once. And the, and the, the Tsar said, this is not... A intervention because he didn't want the Jews to go too far and sort of create a, a religious government instead of a real government. From now on, it'll just be the church and that's it. So this can be illustrated in the Bolshevik revolution that occurred about a hundred years later. Surprise, surprise, everything in hundred years sections. And in that Bolshevik revolution, they killed their czar. Yeah, I jumped ahead here. Tsar Nicholas II was the one that was killed in the, in the Bolshevik revolution. And Alexander I was the one that fought uh, Napoleon. Yeah, I don't have my notes organized, but I would have had that ready. So Nicholas, the one that got killed in the Bolshevik Revolution, you can see what happened. He, he got killed by people that basically believed God was in charge of everything. And if that God was ordering them to kill the Tsar, then they would do it. That, that's how bad the Bolshevik Revolution was. There's also this event called the Holodomor, which a lot of people think the Holocaust borrowed some of its history from. 
uh, the whole of the mart itself is such a mystery and the ukraine people do not agree that it ever happened and the russia people do not agree that it happened in their territory in siberia so nobody agrees about the whole of the mart today if we push the whole of the mart back 100 years we can actually see that it was part of a much greater genocide it was not as planned as we thought it was and we also couldn't, shouldn't be blaming the jews for it which a lot of people do online if you notice a lot of people do for the bolshevik revolution and you know, that's, too, that's too convenient. You know, they, they took over the government and started a mass genocide. Now, the genocide was the, the previous century and it's still being covered up today. And it wasn't like, you know, sending people in cattle cars either. It was a God showed up and killed everyone with lightning and fire kind of genocide, God being the humans on Mars. So more inductive proofs. You got the return of slavery immediately after the 1812 event. The Jesuits are trying to do slaves, but they didn't have many slaves. They had a lot of religious adherents. After in the 19th century, now you have slaves, real ones. So bad that you got a bunch of countries start declaring, you know, abolition and you got a civil war in America. That's how recent slavery happened. And why would it happen? Because the church took over all the governments after all of the enemies of Napoleon and the Russo Empire were defeated and they preserved the churches of the Russo Empire. They said, those are the holy sites. We're in charge of those locations and those locations are secretly in charge of all the governments from now on to this day. The church is pretty much in charge of everything. And it is their corporate structure that they invented back then that we model today in all of our corporations. That's why they're so disconnected. And, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. Um, it's all modeled off of that. So return of slavery. You have these, these horrible events like the um, Aztecs taking out the Mayans and then the Spanish conquistadors taking out the Aztecs. And it's just like all bloody and no one wants to talk about it much. We all just take it for granted that it happens. But actually, Fomenko points out these events happened much more recently, recently and all at once. It happened pretty much, well, he doesn't say 19th century. He says 18th, 17th. I say 19th century. That's when the Mayans were wiped out. That's when the Native Americans were wiped out. That's when Manifest Destiny first appeared. At that point, you have the return of slavery and the suppression of piracy. You got, had a lot of piracy in, in the South China Sea, for example. You got, let's see what I got here. I got a person. You got a bunch of Asian pirates. We don't, never even heard of, and I had that note on here. And they're all redacted today. The entire region of the Pacific Islands is redacted today. I'll, I'll get into that in a second. It's been wiped out. That whole French Polynesian area where the Jesuits had a lot of influence has been subjected to massive lightning scars, creating atolls and unlivable islands, essentially. But in the 17th century, there was literature of, of pirates entire pirate regions, much bigger islands than exist today, and societies that were free. And the, the Westerners were afraid to go there. They called them pirates. They, they, they said they would kidnap you and you know, eat you and stuff like that. Oh, get off topic. So anyway, with the mud flow event, all of those pirates were wiped out. And you don't see pirates anywhere else on the planet anymore. Now you got this, this over analysis of the pirates of the Caribbean only. And in this region, where the Barbary pirates, my ancestors from Morocco actually, were active in the 19th century, these were the last pirates to remain active at all. They were the ones moving everyone around in the 19th century. They moved everyone around. They brought black children to America to work as slaves. They brought white children to America in the North to also be slaves. They, brought, they moved all of the black people out of Egypt, which is why I don't see them there anymore. They moved 150,000 black Egyptians to Sierra Leone, which is why everyone thinks that they come from Sierra Leone today. A bunch of black people in the French empire stayed there and a bunch of French citizens in Louisiana stayed there too, in New Orleans. But most other places were subject to this massive reorganization of, of humanity. Why? Because mud flood event, right? You read into it. It was a reset event. It was a erasing of everything, covering it up, 
and all the cities were now uninhabitable. Everyone was starving and nobody could travel or communicate and they relied entirely on cargo. In the early 19th century, cargo trains appear everywhere. Train tracks appear everywhere on the planet, you know, Asia, Europe, America. And they bring cargo to all these reset cities, places that have been wiped of life. They bring people to the cities, <clears throat> orphans mostly. Why orphans? Because so many of their parents died. We know that 500, you know, 500,000 people died in the Napoleonic Wars. Just leave these running. And we know that there were a lot of orphans in this war. So yeah, there's a lot of children moved. And you can read about orphan trains. Let me pull that up again, actually. Let's get into it. Yeah, it's going to be a long video. Orphan. Right, so all these pictures of, especially in the turn of the century, 19th century, orphan trains. You got a bunch of children on trains and photos with pictures saying, please, well, I can get the rest of the pictures at all. Please get, please wanted. We need homes for all these orphans. And let's grab some tra train track maps. Here's uh, some of the new trains. Went to Minnesota, went to Chicago. And these are reset cities. These are places that, that could not live. So the cargo would be what would now keep people alive. This again, this continued till today. We actually cannot live in any of the cities we live in today without cargo. It's all about the cargo supply continuing and the plantations that supply all that cargo. So the reset cities were repopulated with orphans. Orphans had no idea of their parents' religions or belief systems, allowing for reset civilization. They moved the, the races around. And uh, let me grab that map here. If I move this over here. One second. You can ask any questions if you want. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I respect your, your process. I really feel like we're, we're getting somewhere here. So, yeah, I mean, I will say we, we should wrap up soon because I don't okay. want to, you know, give right. everything away and give people a, a reason to you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. maybe a cliffhanger, right? Can we leave right. them something right. to, to follow up with you on? Because, I mean, you've done such a great job so far of giving us a kind of comprehensive view of the mud flood from the beginning, right. you, you mentioned that, you know, this is an electromagnetic effect, some sort of really direct energy weapon. Your theory is that it's these people on Mars. I don't have anything that really would right. go against that. I mean, it makes sense to me, especially given the nature of the Old Testament, the way right. you describe where it's like, yeah, no other gods but us. And, you know, just listen to us, you know, and it's very contemptful and very controlling, <laughs> you know, that, right. really the opposite of omnipotence. It feels like they're on Mars and they're like our, you know, controlling ex-girlfriend or something like, hey, you better answer my texts, <laughs> you know. It is like that. Here, since you asked, let me just put a like one other thing they want to show. And since you're right, I totally talked about mud flood and everything else. And it got down to the premise of why this happened. And it's most important to me why it's more important than what or how or anything else like that. Because the primer, they could figure out everything else. It led me on this journey. So let me just go briefly about, about what I found on Google Earth. If anyone is still watching, yeah. I started yeah, I started looking at these locations myself. You gotta look at yourself. Can't take people's word for it. And I want to see, can I really can I really target Grand Canyon as a lightning scar? Or is it really what they say it is millions, billions of years old Colorado River carving through it. Well, first of all, there used to be a river there called the Rio Grande River, which totally dried up now. And on all the old maps, you will not find a Colorado River on the, on the older maps. So I actually was able to find on the older maps, there's no Grand Canyon at all, no, no details. And you got people traveling through this reason, region saying something else was there. So that's one testimony. Then I looked at it myself and I wanted to determine 
can I place the Grand Canyon as a lightning scar and not as a dendritic carving from water? So uh, you see, it's a very unique kind of location, right? It's very deep, one mile deep and very flat, which right away tells you that this is not even, you know, it's not even erosion. You know, some erosion is not happening. Other erosion is too much. So that can't be, it's not, it can't be even erosion, something else. Maybe it was a river that was extremely active or something. Okay, so I got to find um, clues that describe the Grand Canyon as a lightning scar and not a river. I found one. Actually, I found one this morning. I wasn't even looking for it. Check this out. You can see a line right across this region here. Right. And there's the river. So why would this line form? You start to ask this question. Why would a crisscross line form in a river region? Mm. And... And then the only explanation possible is it's not what we think it is. It's a coincidence, which leads to the next question. Can I find another one? Yes. And if you can find another one, just like it, it's another not a line, coincidence. <laughs> it's not a coincidence anymore, is it? So look at this over here. It's like a line there and yeah. a line there. So you see what I'm saying, right? There's some, right, yeah. there's some clues here that this Grand Canyon is not really, you know, what they say it is and that the shape of it doesn't really follow what a river would do. This mm. actually looks like a, a uncontrolled lightning scar. And if you look at some of the pictures that I'm going to tell you. So anyway, let's go into a couple of these locations. I talked about the uh, Salt Lake City. Okay, so we'll get to the Grand Canyon. I talked about that. Salt Lake City. Oh, no, San Rafael Swell. Andrew Hall covers this entire location. He went to it. He says this entire location is lightning scarred. Uh, a lot of evidence of that, but also has evidence of a, second, a primary and a secondary lightning scar. Primary one, carving off of the left side here, a secondary one unintentionally carving this region here. So that's what gave me the idea of, of that the secondary one might've been unintentional, that they're trying to cover their tracks up, but they didn't expect that to happen. You also got these arc blast mountain regions. These are mountain regions that cannot be explained by tectonics because there's no plate there. There's no mountains or volcanoes, but you can see that there's sort of like a, a blast pattern in one direction, like, like, like wind or, or energy was hitting it in one direction. So that's one thing Andrew Hall points out to look for, and it scatters these regions. Got Salt Lake City, you see Shiprock, I recovered that. Positive Lichtenberg patterns. Lichtenberg pattern is something that you find in science that where electricity fills out an entire region and spreads out you know, evenly. These, these regions like you find in, in the in Aspen, in the Colorado Rockies, could not have been carved out. It uh, could not have been formed by tectonic plates. They, well, I have all my, uh, my notes on that right now, but let me grab this here. All right, so... Andrew Hall covers that one in great detail. That region has dendritic scarring. scarring. You got mountains like this are positive scarring. They can be formed in labs. The, the Sapphire Project actually has proven this. Let's get to some other locations. Oh yeah, let's, let's cover Great Wall of China because that one's really important. Great Wall of China, they say is ancient. Fomenko says it's been built only 500 years ago. But the first thing I noticed about the Great Wall is that it built on a positive scarring region. Boom, you can see right there, positive scarring. You can see dendrilic patterns going across China. And all the yellow represents the places that the Great Wall of China was built. These places are not strategic. They're not able to keep out an army or anything like that. They're literally built on the scarring that occurred in these regions recently. So the, the Great Wall of China is an attempt to cover up the scarring. And so is the Himalayan Mountains. Let me just grab that one really fast. Himalayan Mountains, which again does not appear in ancient maps of India, is this entire region right here. You can see that sort of swept. It has dendrilic scarring again all over it, pattern scarring, and not enough water to cause it, not enough equal erosion, nothing like that. You also have a cross 
crisscrossing points. I found I marked a couple on there. And they have regions set up all along the, the uh, mountains saying they're ancient sites, ancient Buddha statues built by Jesuits from you know, thousands of years ago. Now, these are attempts to cover up this lightning scar in this region. So, Cat, Himalayan Mountains, they have to have to say that the plate boundary goes all the way up into the Himalayan Mountains just to explain them at all. They have no explanation for the Himalayans. Great. Cover that up. I think I'm almost done. Just going to see what else we got here. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the, the evidence is definite. When you say dendritic, people should imagine like a, the same pattern that like plants make, you know, where you see yeah, water and plants. Exactly. Off. Yeah. yeah I've got this very yeah, obvious this. when you point it out here with the map that there's something going yeah, on. Yeah. I wanted to get to this map because once you see it, it's like, Oh my God, it's right there. I'm going to put this in my video and I realize I have to cut a lot of this down. So we got this location called Mount Masada in, in Israel. I've been there and the ancient, Romans apparently killed a bunch of Jews on the top of Masada. The story makes no sense on its face. This location seems to be recently formed, and it's also called, it has Mesa in the word, it, word for it. Now, Mesas are not found everywhere on earth. They're only found in certain locations, and they have lightning in, in, in those locations. I'm sorry. In the Sapphire Project, they've been able to demonstrate that those locations with the, the Mesas, with the flat top mountains, could only have been created through a combination of positive and negative lightning scarring that no other force on earth can do that kind of thing. So mesas are extremely unique. Anytime you see them, that you have to uh, basically question, you know, how they were formed. So this, the Middle East region obviously has a lot of lightning scarring in it. Saudi Arabia region, uh, sort of looking at it, there's ancient sites, there's all kinds of formations that, that no explanation by geologists of how they were made, that kind of thing. And Africa, yeah, there's a lot to cover here. I'll leave it at that. That's enough for the map. Wow. And, you know, you're connecting so many dots that we've talked about recently on the show, too. I mean, I had Isaac Weiss up on recently and I asked him, like, hey, what's, you know, have you done any research in your local area? And he pointed out that how strange the uh, Mormon temple in Utah is with these, you know, exactly. explainable white stones was the one feature that he mentioned. But yeah, I mean, from Project Bluebeam to the Sapphire Project, I mean, you've gone through a lot of different things here today, Ari. It's definitely leading me with a lot of questions. But to maybe put a, a cap on everything. Yeah, please. We see that the mud flood took place in this event, in this time period where Napoleon was defeated, right? That's mm -hmm. the clearest way but given that the calendars and the timelines have been altered so much right mm -hmm. if you had to nail it down would you say that it was 200 years ago that all of this happened ah good question excellent this is going to ask this question briefly how can you fake things like history like like facts like locations it's really hard to fake these things while well, it's gone too fast isn't it? and the answer is you can't there's certain things you just can't fake cover up things um Fomienko makes this claim on his thing that everything in the last, he says, 300 years seems to be legitimately dated and that he signed off on all that stuff. And I just I found such a weird claim. Like, how can you be so sure that that last 300 years too? But he actually spells it out in detail. And he says that the Western historians stopped redacting things at that point in the 17th century. They stopped and everything else has been the official date since then. So, so he says, so there's a couple other reasons why I think that's the case. When I looked into Declaration of Independence. I was trying to falsify a lot of this American history. And I found out it's not false at all. It's actually really 
real and that a lot of it's been lied about. The constitution is lied about. We didn't need a constitution. Nobody needed a constitution when it was formed. They wanted, the declaration was enough. We already had our vassal state with our own government, everything we knew what to do. So the constitution was an attempt to usurp that power. So once I understood the 1812 war and the French revolution, I finally understood the American revolution in the context of it. And that those dates could not have been erased or redacted or changed because they're too significant to the players on the ground, remembering them as a religious war that, that Napoleon lost to God, essentially. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, and this is such a key point in history. These past hundred years, so much has happened that's worth analyzing. I mean, and then you go back to the Roman Empire and you make the connection between the Russo Ward Empire and the Roman Empire. I mean, that connects with the Jews. From what I've researched about Josephus, you know, the Romans were very connected to the trials and tribulations of the Jews and, and all of the history of the Jews is very connected to the Roman Empire. And yeah, I mean, there's so much more to go down, folks. Yeah. If you want yes. to see all of this information firsthand, I recommend going to paradigmthreat.net because Ari does a great job of presenting this information visually. Obviously, as we've described here, this is all going to be a part of a, a video. And I'm honored that you let me help you do the rough draft here, you know, because yeah, I myself, I've been doing some some videos on our YouTube. And yeah, it's a it's a process to get all this information matched up with the visual context. But when you do, it's such a rich way to understand this stuff. So kudos to you, man. You're doing a great Thank job. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. And one thing I'll add there. I'm actually looking for help. If anyone out there listening to this that can do multimedia, and we're talking about multimedia only, just the ability to present it in a nice, pleasant way to people, you know, not so shocking, not so that I would like to make this into more of a project and really get a lot of, you know, attention for it done correctly. I consider my way of doing things quite a bit sloppy and, uh, you know, just because I'm limited on time and stuff like that. But I really appreciate what you just said. And you really helped me kind of test a lot of these things out right here. And that's, that's a big part of it right there. Absolutely. So tell folks other than paradigmthreat.net, where can they go to follow up on your work and, and show you some love and support if they got the, the money to do so? Well, my timeline project, which you can find on paradigmthreat.net, is my only Patreon project. And that is to make a human history timeline from the first memory until modern day. So that's a project. We're trying to fund it and find people to do that. Definitely looking for help in that project. Also looking for help in general on Paradigm Threat. And if you want to just Check it out. Check out our, our team and our discussions and our, our debates and all that. Go to our Discord. Discord link's right there on the website. And we have a lot of people. We're getting a lot of people these days. And we're very friendly. Just come in and talk to us because, we, you know, we'd love to see you there. So, Absolutely. And, of course, folks, if you know altmediaunited.com, you know Ari is there as well. All the links are featured there. So check them out. And, Ari, man. I'm just blown away. I feel like when you get going, you know, it's hard to jump in with a question. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to do like a review where I come in yeah. some prepared questions because this was a little different. This was more of a presentation, but yeah. definitely want to have you back on for more of a Q&A back and forth dialogue in the future, man. Yeah, just like that last one. You guys totally uh, schooled me on or questioned me on, uh, on Saturday. And I was like, oh, my God, questions, questions. I was, it was intense. And it was awesome. I really appreciate that one. And, and since then, that's come up a lot. I mean, I don't want to give the cat 
uh, or let the cat out of the bag too much, but I know you and Dan Donunaki from Rising from the Ashes are planning on connecting some of that Birkeland current stuff to the box saga story, right? We yeah. uh, we recently did an episode on the box saga. I think the box saga is super interesting, and I'm curious to see how it fits into all the work you've been doing because that's. Yeah, that's another one of these threads that just leads to so much more. And I mean, we didn't even use the word Tartaria, but to, to <laughs> kind of wrap it up, would you say that Tartaria is the uh, Russo Ward Empire? I don't mean to generalize yeah. this too much, but would that and be an- fair to and say? And the answer and the reason is so simple. It's because the Westerners called it that, you know, Barbaria in Africa and Tartaria in the East. It's because they didn't like either region. So, yeah, in all the maps, you'll see Tartaria, but we can't see Rusword Empire maps. They've all been erased. They're in that 50-mile underground, you know, reservoir of, of artifacts that the Catholic Church has over there in Italy, if that rumor is true, 50 miles of artifacts. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, bravo, man. Please support Ari on ParadigmThreat.net and, of course, on Patreon because we got to get that timeline nailed down. Yeah. Folks, thanks for tuning into the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and have a great moment wherever you are in the now, the ever expanding now. Motherfuckers, it's a beautiful day to be alive. It's Monday. You're listening to My, My Family, Family Thinks, Thinks I'm, I'm Crazy, crazy. podcast. Instead, because Mark is bananas. Host Mark Palmer. participating in the in the real and it's not that the level or the intensity well yeah maybe it's the intensity because your awareness increases so you're just sort of honestly man if they haven't figured it out yet